Luke chapter 23, and we have begun just last week a series called Seven Sermons from the Cross or on the Cross. And uh, last week served as a, an introduction from the upper room Thursday evening to three o'clock Friday afternoon, the death of Jesus Christ. What happened? What took place? I gave you um, as well as I could the behind the scenes backdrop of Christ's final 15 hours uh, before he was crucified. So I, we want to carry that inertia, carry that momentum into now looking at the first of the seven statements that he made while on the cross. So here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. And, and this is where you now begin to participate in, in the preaching, in the sermon. Uh, you don't come to Sunday morning. You don't listen to the sermon statically. You don't let it go one way. There's got to be an interaction and this is one of the ways that you could do that. I'm going to ask you this morning, right now, you have to have the discipline to do this, self-discipline. When I ask you this question, whose face comes to your mind? And I want you to hold that face in your mind throughout this sermon. Is there anyone in your life who has hurt you and offended you so deeply that you have still not been able to let go. Now, whose face just came to mind? Some, some might have a lot of faces in there. The entire sermon this morning is aiming at that question. So hold that in there as we go through this. Napoleon said as he was dying, I am dying before my time and my body is going to return to the earth. This is the fate of the man we called Napoleon the Great. Those were his final words. Voltaire, the French writer, reportedly said to his doctor just before he died, final words, I have been abandoned by God and by men. I'll give you, this is to his doctor, I'll give you half my fortune if you extend my life by six months. Then I will go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. One man who had opened up a chain of restaurants whispered to his gathered family moments before he died. And as he's whispering, they leaned closer so they could hear him. And he said these words, Slice the ham thin. <laughs> the final words of the preacher, the evangelist D.L. Moody. Here's what he said right before he died. I see earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling me. Listen, if you could, if you could dictate what your final words would be before you die would they be what would they be if you could make the final words occur before you died what would they be they're important final words are important and none more so than of Jesus who as he hung on that cross he spoke seven times now I want you to understand that there's an urgency in this that we understand that we apprehend, comprehend, appropriate, live out these words. Because when you're on the cross, and it was only men, they never crucified women. 
But when you were on the cross and you were nailed through your feet and you were nailed through your wrists, sometimes they did tie you to the cross with ropes. The Gospels make it clear Jesus was nailed. And in order to breathe on the cross, you can inhale, you can't exhale. And if you can't exhale, you can't breathe. You've got to push breath through your vocal cords. In order to speak on the cross, it, it, it was necessary for Jesus to push up on his feet and to pull up on his wrists in order to relax what are called the intercoastal muscles. You've got to relax the diaphragm in order to release oxygen. And so if it was that much pain, every time he spoke was sending fiery, fiery darts of excruciating pain, even to the point they would say of making the victim nauseous. Every time he spoke, if it required that or produced that much pain, then doesn't that put a premium on what he said? If it was that painful, then what he said must be that important. And seven times he spoke. Listen, all of these, try them out. Go home this afternoon, look up all seven times that he spoke, and you can practice it. It can be spoken in one breath. They are all able to be spoken in one breath. They're brief, they're short, they're unbelievably deep and broad. And every statement that he made, friends, is a sermon. It explodes with power and hope. And the first one that we're looking at this morning explodes with mercy. Not long before she died, in 1988, one very, very famous, best-known atheist writers in our country said on television these words, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Nowhere do we see the forgiving, merciful heart of God nowhere more clearly than Jesus, who from the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, what do you do with that verse? Somebody said last night to me after after church, I don't even, I think they said seven words. I didn't even count them. I might be nine. There's not a lot of words there, but there's, there is a world, a world of meaning. And they're right. And what we're going to see and what I'm going to direct your attention to are two main points and lots of sub points. I want to admit to you this morning that at four o'clock yesterday, I finally finished this sermon. It's, this was tremendously difficult. It's just too much. It's too deep. How do you do this in one 35, 40-minute stab? I mean, it's very difficult. And I, I have to admit, I really did not get, I don't think I did justice to it. So that's my invitation to you. Go further than I could take you. Go further into the heart of this prayer. But at least let me give you two things I learned this week when I was studying. Number one, in this prayer, we see the heart of God. In this prayer, we see the heart of God. You won't see the heart of God more clearly than on the crucifixion, and you won't hear it on the crucifixion, I don't think, more clearly than in this prayer. It's the heart of God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you ever wonder, friends, have you, I have, have you ever wondered, am I beyond 
God's mercy. Some of you struggle with addiction. Well, let me put it this way. Every one of us struggle with addiction. You just might not recognize it. But some of you recognize and, and know that you struggle with a, t- a tangible, palpable addiction. Haven't you ever gotten to the point of, after thousands of failures, is this the final straw? Is this the time that God says, I've had enough? I've given you chance after chance. We're done. Now I'm going to bring judgment. And I'm going to bring my wrath. Haven't you ever felt like that? The very first statement of Jesus on the cross, friends, it shows the merciful, loving heart of God. Because here's what's happening, and here's what happens in us when it, when it does this. Let's think in your mind of a tube of toothpaste. Okay, you've got in your mind, you're holding a tube of toothpaste, the kind where the cap can spin off. By the way, when I was a roommate, when I was a college dorm student, and I had roommates, this is good for you to know, um, I learned that a great trick to play is to take your roommate's toothpaste and take raisins and with a toothpick stuff them down in the toothpaste. And when they go to brush your teeth, out plops this little edible piece of fruit that they don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know why I'm telling you that. I trust. I think it's from the Lord. Actually, I'm pretty sure that one's not. But take that tube of toothpaste in your mind, okay? And I want you to squeeze it in your mind and watch what's in that tube explode. That's what suffering does to our hearts. Listen, it's the proverbial hit your thumb with the hammer and watch what comes out of your mouth. Except suffering, especially prolonged and intense suffering, it squeezes your heart and what comes out of your mouth, the words, what the emotions that come pouring out of your life, the choices that you begin to make, those, those are what were in your heart all along. The suffering has squeezed it like a vice so that it comes out. Well, suffering is squeezing the heart of Jesus. And what's coming out of Jesus is not what normally comes out of a crucified victim. Because what normally comes out of a crucified victim are curses and profanity and threats of vengeance beyond the grave, especially to the Roman soldiers who are doing and inflicting this pain. What comes out of Jesus when his heart is squeezed is mercy. In fact, the Greek text, you know, the Greek language has tenses. And the tense behind Father, forgive them, is a tense that indicates Jesus is repeating these words. This isn't once and done, once and spoken and done. This is Jesus over and over again saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Every spike of agony that's coursing through his body is met with the mercy of God flowing out of his heart. That's God's mercy for you. The son bled mercy and he went to the father to ask that forgiveness would be given. His prayer goes up, but his concern goes down to the very ones below him who are responsible for his suffering. He prays, Father, forgive them. But who is them? Well, let's just take a stab at answering that because, by the way, this is so, so controversial. 
Let's at least start literally who them was, and then we'll get to metaphorically. In one sense, the them are the four groups that are standing below him. You've got, first of all, obviously, the soldiers. Certainly, them includes the soldiers, the ones who have wielded the hammer, the ones that have taken ropes and sticks and vertically brought the stipes of that cross so that it would thud down into the rock and often dislocating the shoulders. Certainly, the soldiers are included in this prayer. The ones who attached that little angled seat that I didn't tell you about last week. It's a little angled seat, not perpendicular. You can't rest your weight on it. You can only lean on it. And before you think that that's Roman people giving a little mercy on the cross, you got to know that's not mercy. They wanted to prolong suffering. They didn't want you to die too quickly. This is all about Suffering to the full extent possible. So certainly the soldiers are included in them. The soldiers who always, always stripped their victims naked in order to humiliate them on the cross. And there's four soldiers, the text says. And guess what they're doing down below Jesus? Now here's the imagery. Jesus is on the cross. He's nailed. He's gasping in little small gulps of air. That's what you do when you're being crucified. And he's speaking over and over. Father, forgive them. Here's the soldiers, all four of them. A centurion and three others, they're formed the death squad and they're assigned to each victim. They're taking dice and they overturned a Roman soldier's helmet and threw the dice in it, bartering away his clothing. See, his clothing was valuable. Jesus was, by the way, supported by women, Luke 8, from Herod's palace. Ladies, you have a role. Man, you have such a role. How did Jesus fund his ministry? Luke 8 says they were women in Herod's palace in the den of the lion of iniquity. Here's these women that knew Jesus was the Messiah and they bank rolled his ministry. He had an undergarment. He had a tunic that was one seamless piece of cloth. That's valuable. And so the soldiers have taken his clothes off of him. They have stripped him naked and they're bartering away, gambling away his clothes while he's dying and praying for them. You know, Corey Ten Boom in her book, The Hiding Place, wrote that Fridays, Fridays in the Nazi death camps was each Friday. They were the day for the weekly medical inspection and all the women Listen, I'm going to be a little bit evocative here because you've got to get her point. All the women had to stand straight, hands by their side, and march slowly past the grinning guards wearing not even a stitch of clothes. Every Friday, they had to undergo that humiliation. And she couldn't understand, Corey couldn't, what satisfaction those men could get looking at these stick-thin, swollen-bellied women who aren't wearing any clothes. But suddenly, as she stood behind her sister Betsy, who was ahead of her in line, the, the memory of Jesus Christ naked up on the cross leapt into her mind and she whispered forward towards Betsy and says, Betsy, they took his clothes too. 
And ahead of her, she heard a little gasp, and Betsy responded, Oh, Corey, and I never even thanked him. Listen, you might have thanked Jesus for taking your nails. You might have thanked Jesus for the sins that his father poured on him, your sins. But have you ever thanked Jesus that he took your humiliation and your shame? So you've got the soldiers that are standing down there. And we're just looking at four literal groups that were there. We've got the religious Rulers, You know what the text says? It says that they stood there. In the Greek, it says their thumb was pushing up their nose. Remember, we have that saying, you thumbed your nose at somebody. That came, that was alive then. It was a way of sneering and mocking arrogantly somebody who you thought was lower than you. Here they are, these religious rulers. They had broken their laws to falsely accuse Jesus. And they're continuing to even do this. Listen, they're not at Golgotha. They're not at the, the, the Skull Mountain to talk to Jesus. There's no record that at the site of crucifixion, any of the religious rulers talked to Jesus. They're speaking to the crowd and they're whipping the crowd up into a frenzy of shouts and and, and of shouts of crucifying and then we've got a third group that's the crowd and they're passing by jesus like he's an exhibit in a museum these are the same ones that just a few days before many of them were shouting to coronate him king they were singing the hallel to him And now they're caught up in their shouts of crucifying him. Mark in this gospel says that the people were walking by him and they're hurling, listen, they're hurling insults up to Jesus. Have you ever been suffering physically and somebody mocks you? It's doubly painful. And yet the response was the squeezing of the Godson's heart and out of his mouth comes mercy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you can't forget that Jesus is crucified between two robbers, two criminals. One on his left and one on his right. And at the beginning of crucifixion, alarmingly and astoundingly, I mean, who would think that this would happen? They who are suffering the same fate that he is, they are reviling Jesus. They're cursing Jesus. They're pouring profanity out on Jesus. Why, when you're being crucified, would you curse your fellow victim? It's as if the entire world turned away from God. And that did. And he said to all of these groups, they know not what they do. They knew, listen, they knew. They knew they were killing. Pilate knew he had condemned an innocent man. They knew they were killing somebody. The religious rulers, they knew that they had broken their laws. They were experts in the law. 
It's not that they didn't know that they were killing Jesus. That's not what he means, no, not what they do. They didn't know the extent of what they were doing. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Their minds were darkened. They did not know with clarity. Now let me ask you a question. Do you really think that you ever know the full extent of your sin? Would you not, if you knew the full extent of your sin, cry out like Isaiah every time you cheat, every time you gossip, every time you slander, every time you've got a lustful look? Wouldn't you cry out with, with Isaiah, woe is me? We rarely do that. Listen, if we really knew the full extent of every sin, we would vomit. It would make us sick. You know, we try to do this in parenting. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. We take our children and when they sin against each other, we bring them together and we try to get them beyond an apology. An apology, friends, doesn't cut it when it's sin involved. We try to help them understand what you just did to your sister, what you just did to your brother, what you just did to us, your parents. You put Jesus on the cross. And he's crying out from the cross, kids, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't realize the extent of what they're doing. Listen, parents, take your kids, even if they're adults, take them beyond apologies. We won't let our kids apologize when there's sin involved. If they accidentally did something, that's all you need to do. Just say sorry. But if there's sin, you've got to ask for forgiveness. Because there's atonement in forgiveness. They didn't realize the full extent of their sin, and none of us ever really do. Every time we sin, friends, listen, get the imagery. We spit in the face, the glorious, loving face of God. We are hammering nails into his wrists and his feet, and we are furiously laying his back open with a whip. That's what we do when we sin. And it leads us to another group that I think is included, now a metaphorical group, in the prayer of them, and it's us. Friends, we're in this prayer. He's praying for us. Listen, just the night before in John chapter 17, Jesus says to his father, I'm praying, Father, for my 11 disciples that you've given me. But listen, here's what he says. But also for those who will believe in me through the word. That's you if you've put your faith in Jesus. And that's me. In the upper room, he prayed for us. On the cross, he died for us. And he's still praying for us. Every person who has or will turn to Christ and receive forgiveness was prayed for on that cross. Listen, I don't know what each of your lives have been like. I know a lot of your stories. I got to tell you, as, a, as your pastor, I, I, I really believe this. I don't, think, I don't think you could ever tell me anything. I don't care what you've ever done. You couldn't tell me anything. That would make me love you less. 
I think I've heard almost, not everything, but almost all of it. And when people sit in my office and they're confessing to me what they have done and asking me to help walk them into the mercy of God, God forgives, I don't. But I can walk people into that mercy. And when they're telling me what they have done, i got to tell you, there's not ever an exception that my heart does not go out to them in love and compassion. I know what it's like to sin. I know what it's like to be caught up in sin. We don't tell people very often the full extent of our hearts. And I don't know, maybe some of you are or have been drug dealers. Maybe you are still, some of you, I know we've got some people in our church still addicted to drugs. You might be an adulterer. You may have had an abortion. You might have gotten in a fight with somebody and killed them. And nobody knows these things other than God. You might be at that point, but I've, I've got to tell you, if God offered forgiveness to the people who were beating and spitting on and crucifying his son, why would he not give that to you? There's no way you could be beyond his mercy. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, but we really don't know what the word forgive really means. So I want to take you in a deep dive of the word forgive. What's it mean to forgive? Can I tell you this? I believe it's the most incredible word in the entire Bible. I do think it's one of the least understood. It's the Greek word, afiemi, if you want to know what the Greek word is. It has a prefix and a root word. And here's what the prefix means. Apo means separation. And it has a root word that means to put into motion. So you take these two concepts, to separate from and to put into motion. Actually, it's the other way. You separate from something and then you put it into motion. It means to put into motion and send away, to hurl away from yourself. In short, it means to let go of something. But when we think, listen, climb into this. When we think of forgiveness, usually what we're, we're kind of talking about is this, that we take those feelings of animosity that we had and we change it to a renewed friendliness and affection. Oh, I forgive you. I'm not mad at you anymore. And I, I love you again. Well, that's kind of how we speak of the word forgiveness, but that's not how God speaks of the word forgiveness. It's totally different. It's the same word. Let me give you a little bit of usage in practical living where this word came out of. You remember when Peter, James, and John and Andrew were called by Jesus to come follow him? The text says they let go, they dropped their nets immediately and followed him. That word dropped, that phrase let go is the exact same word forgive. Greek teachers, when they wanted to leave a discussion and go on to a new topic, would use this word. It's time to separate and go into motion to another topic. Bankers who canceled a debt and prisoners who released a prisoner all used this exact same word. 
In the Old Testament, remember they had the Old Testament where the high priest with a scapegoat would take the sins of Israel and he would symbolically transfer all of the nation's sins by putting his hands on the head of that goat and then they would let that goat free, drive it into the wilderness, never to come back again. It was meant to separate the goat carrying the sins of Israel, separate that goat from Israel and set it into motion never to return again. Now you're starting to understand the power of Jesus' prayer. Father, separate them from the charges of sin and set them into motion, those charges into motion, so that they'll never come back to their account again. And through the shedding of his own blood, Jesus Christ actually took the sins of the world upon his own head, as it were, and carried them an infinite distance away where they could never, ever return. Friends, listen, when a sinner puts his or her trust in Jesus, that payment that Jesus made from the cross is applied to that person and his sin is put away from him, never, ever could be charged to him again. In short, it means that the charges of wrongdoing, God has let them go because of the death of Jesus. He's dismissed and abandoned them. Jesus is asking his father that when they come to me in faith, when they put their trust in me, father, carry away their charges, carry away their guilt and don't ever let it come back to them again. That's what he's praying for the ones who are killing him. But how does it happen? How does God do this? God just cannot indiscriminately drop the charges that sin has incurred. Friends, listen, God is holy. Sin is heinous. It has ripped the very fabric of the creation into a distortion of its former beauty. God would not be just if he just dropped indiscriminately guilt and sin. Listen, that does make sense. I guarantee it when I tell you this example. You go to court as a witness against someone who is standing there accused of killing your loved one. And you have nervously anticipated this day with fights between mercy and vengeance and you walk into that court and all of a sudden the judge says to everybody listen my eight-year-old is pitching today and the little league game is the first time he's pitched and I want to go to his game so I'm going to drop these charges and this person could be set free he could go how would you feel If God just indiscriminately said, you know what, I'm not going to take into account your sins, but I will yours. Could that possibly be justice? God is a holy, just God. Listen, friends, you've got to know this, that God's wrath is going to fall. He's holy. He's just. He has to extend his wrath to sin. And it's either going to fall on the innocent head of Jesus or it's going to fall on you and me. And Jesus is praying, Father, let your wrath fall on me, drop their charges, and let them go free and don't ever apply it to their account again. 
Something innocent has to die in order to atone for the sins of the guilty. Listen, millions of lambs and goats and sheep and bulls and pigeon doves, millions of them throughout the history of Israel were killed and the blood sprinkled against the altar. All that could bring was a temporary cease fire. The very moment you sin again, you now need another sacrifice. How different it is when Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, gave His life for us. It was done once, never to be repeated, Hebrews says, because His blood is sufficient for all of our sins, past, present, and future. You know, as Abraham tied up his son Isaac and laid him on that altar to be sacrificed, listen, God offered his son Jesus to be on the sacrifice in our place. So who put Jesus on the cross? Well, in one sense, the Jews, in another sense, the Romans, and in a metaphorical real sense, us. But I've got to tell you, in the most cosmic sense, his father did. His father said, you will be the lamb. You will be the sacrifice. And I will put all of their sins on you, all who come to faith in you. I will transfer like an earthly father. I will put my hands on your head and you will take their sins and we will separate them from their guilt and I will never bring it back again. You know, the Greek language I told you has many tenses. The word forgive, the tense of the word forgive means something that must be put into effect at that very moment. Jesus is saying to his father, father, don't wait. I know I'm not dead yet. The shedding of blood means death. I know I haven't died yet, but my blood is pouring and my blood is atoning. Don't wait. Start forgiving now. This is an urgency in Jesus. Drop their charges, Father. Throw their sin out of your court and make room for your kindness. Friends, the mercy of God is like a race car waiting for the light to turn green. It's like, it's like a track star waiting for the gun, a racehorse waiting for the gate to drive. Jesus can't wait to forgive. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do is a general prayer that the world would know that there is no sin against the Son of God that is so severe it cannot be forgiven. Did it work? I always love it when people said, did, did prayer work? Better way to ask, did his father answer his prayer? Listen, there was never a prayer of Jesus that was not answered by his father. He always prayed in the perfect will of God. And his prayer was answered. One of the crucified prisoners, while still on the cross, one moment was reviling and cursing him, and the next confessing that Jesus was God and repenting. And then later that day at 3 o'clock, when Jesus died and there was an earthquake, the centurion and the death squad of his four soldiers, all four of them, it says, were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The forgiveness of God is going out and it goes from the epicenter of the cross 
Fifty days later, the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the gospel to many who, quote, acted in ignorance. There is the perfect answer to the prayer, for they know not what they do. They acted in ignorance. Friends, 3,000 people got saved in that sermon. And after that, 5,000 more were saved. In fact, listen, do a study in Acts. Because at the beginning of Acts, they're very, very detailed with their numbers of who gets saved. But so many people get saved, they a third of the way through, they stop counting. You can't count how many people are getting saved. Because the prayer of Jesus is being answered. Forgiveness is rippling out of the cross like a seismic wave. And people are being swept into the mercy of God from the blood of Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Jesus had prophesied this in John 12. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the heart of God. He has a heart of mercy. All right, now some of you are happy because, you know, that little nagging, troubling question I asked you in the beginning, whose picture, whose face comes to mind when I ask you if there's anybody that you have forgiven. You think I forgot that? You, little do you know of my memory. That person's face still in your mind? Because now we ask a question and we see this. In this prayer, we see the example that we must follow. Noah Alistair Begg once said something so insightful. He's a Scottish preacher in Ohio. He said this, The entire world tilts toward pain. Listen, we get hurt. And we hurt people. I hurt people. I'm in a position of influence and I can greatly hurt people. And I know I've hurt people in this church. We hurt people. People hurt us. But when they do, Jesus provided for us a clear example of what God expects. We are expected to give forgiveness. We're expected to drop the charges and set them into motion and never bring them to the person's account again. In fact, John MacArthur said, forgiveness is the most God-like act you will ever do. And I agree. So what do we learn? Well, let me take you quickly through a few things. Forgiveness, first of all, sets both parties free. Forgiveness sets both parties free. Let me tell you about the man whose picture you see behind me. It was December 20th. Chris Carrier in 1974 was abducted. He was walking home and some man began to tell him stories about his father, seemed to know his father, and said, hey, I'll take you to your father. Come into the van with me, took him to the Everglades Swamp. And there he was angry with the boy's father because the boy's father had fired him six months previously from his job. He began to burn Chris with cigarettes. He began to stab him repeatedly with an ice pick. And then in one final act of rage, dragged the little 10-year-old boy out of the van into the swamps and took a gun and put it up against his left temple and shot. Miraculously, Chris survived. This man thought he had died. He left. He left him in the swamp. Somehow the animals didn't kill him. Somehow he dragged himself to the side of a road that was rural, but somehow some family with his two boys who were camping, this father, found him and then figured out whose family he belonged to and got him back to his own family. No one was ever arrested. He survived. He lost sight of his left eye. And then 
All of a sudden, a man named David McAllister, a 77-year-old ex-con, shortly before he died, confessed to the crime. Well, part of what allowed him to confess or moved him to confess is that the statute of limitations on the crime had expired. But Carrier, now a youth pastor, went to see him, and he found David McAllister, frail and blind, living in a North Miami Beach nursing home, and he began to visit him regularly. Listen, get this. He began to read to David the Bible and praying with him, and the love that he began to show, McAllister persuaded McAllister to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And Carrier asked of this by Oprah, I've always wanted to use her name in a sermon. (laughs) Said, while many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister, from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. If I'd chosen to hate him all these years or spent my life looking for revenge, then I wouldn't be the man I am today, the man my wife and my children love, the man God has helped me to be. See, he learned that it's not our right, it's not our job to hold charges against those who hurt us. It's just not in our calling. And when we do, listen, listen to this, when we do, it eats away in us, which is why unforgiveness has been called the cancer of the soul. Forgiveness heals, it brings peace for both Parties, But there's more. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetfulness, friends. I know you've heard you've got to forgive and forget. It's not even literally possible, number one. And it's not the example of God. Well, Pastor Tim, don't you read Jeremiah? It says, God says, I will remember your sin no more. Why do you mean? What do you mean when you say that God doesn't forgive and forget? Listen, God doesn't mark the grave where he buries our sin. He doesn't put a buoy in the ocean where he drops in and drowns it. And he doesn't go on a retrieval mission when we sin again. What it means is that he will not go get those charges and revisit them to our account. We're free from them. We are innocent of the charge. To forgive is to refuse to pick up again the charges that we dropped for someone's offense to us. And when that memory, when that memory is so laced with pain and it comes back into our minds, it means that we're not going to allow bitterness and resentment to accompany it. We will not go back and revisit anger and bitterness. Friends, something, listen, we do this. Sometimes we bury the head of the hatchet, but we leave the handle showing where we can find it again. Somebody needs to come to us when we are and tell us the hatchet's showing. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetfulness, and forgiveness sets both parties free, but there's more. Forgiving someone doesn't always immediately heal the hurt and the struggle. Remember Corey Ten Boom? She later wrote of her struggle to forgive someone who had deeply hurt her and wronged her. And she visited an older Lutheran pastor for help. She had two fitful weeks. Sometimes when we're not sleeping well, it's because we're not forgiving well. 
And so she goes to this pastor, and the pastor says to Corey, listen, Corey, look up at that bell tower. There's a bell with a rope dangling below. And when our church sexton lets go of that rope, it continues to go back and forth and dings and dongs until finally slowing to a stop. And he said to her, when you forgive, don't be surprised that it takes the bell a while to stop dinging. When we're tugging at the rope of our grievances for a long time, friends, don't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep dinging and donging in your heart. Swallow it, submerge it, kill it in God's mercy. It will slow down to where it no longer rings. And finally, a forgiving spirit doesn't wait for the offender to apologize or admit wrong. And I am thinking some of you hate that. Because we like the power that goes with withholding forgiveness. You are almost in the most powerful position you will ever be in if you withhold forgiveness. But at the same time, you're as far from the heart of God as you will ever be. Because the heart of God rings with mercy and he has shown that to you. And if you're going to walk with him, you've got to show that to others. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't think I agree with that. All I will do is enable them to do this again. Can I start you out on the cross and remind you that Jesus prayed to his father to forgive them before even one person repented or apologized or asked for it. That's the heart of God that always takes the intentional preemptive movement of mercy. And the Christian has to have a forgiving spirit, a forgiving spirit that prays for the one who has offended you and is ready to go into motion with forgiveness, ready to separate at the earliest sign of repentance. And even before then, ready to separate the charge of wrongdoing from them and send it away to never return. That's what a forgiving spirit does. It begins to pray, Lord, bring them to godly sorrow. Let me be part of what you do to bring them to godly sorrow. More people have been moved to repentance when the one that they've hurt has been moved to love. Did you hear that? You want to bring somebody to repentance? I'm guaranteeing you the fastest way to do it is show them the mercies of God and love them. They will either harden or repent. Either way, God's doing his work. A forgiving spirit refuses to hold on to bitterness. It's always ready to forgive. You know, in East Africa, as I close, in East Africa, one day Stan Mooneyham was walking along with a group. He was there on a mission trip. And he became aware as he walked through the jungle and he was walking on this path, all of a sudden, all around he and this group, this odor, this fragrance, this delightful smell was just coming up from everywhere around them. And he begins to look, he begins to look around. Where is, where's the smell? Are there flowers on the trees or in the ground? I'm, I'm not seeing them. And finally he asks about it and his friends tell him, Stan, look down at your feet. And he does. Down at his feet, 
is a small little blue flower that grows along that path. And every time you step and you crush the tiny blossom, it releases its perfume into the air. And his friend said, you know what we call that plant? You know what we call that flower? And Stan says what? In East Africa, they call it the forgiveness flower. That's exactly what we see as Jesus is being crushed and humiliated on the cross. What comes from him is a fragrance of mercy that has drawn millions of people to him for salvation. When people crush you, do they smell that same fragrance? If they do, you will draw them to Jesus. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what we're learning. Thank you for the challenge. Lord, the incredible depth of your mercy, the incredible scope of your forgiveness. Lord, thank you for showing us this so clearly in your prayer. Lord, I pray that we will grapple with this, that we will wrestle with this, that those whose minds had that picture of somebody come into their their mind, a picture of someone whom whom they still had not yet forgiven. And and the signs of that are bitterness and resentment and anger. Lord, I pray for those or that they will have the power to forgive and not wait. That they will bring to bear the fragrance of Christ, the mercy of God. Lord, let us live like this as the people of God. And when we have the handle of the hatchet sticking up above the ground, let us be brave enough to say to one another, your hatchet is showing. Lord, help us to be forgiving. We love you. We thank you for the example in our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.